Chapter Six, Part One of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Simon. How I Found Livingston. Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, including four months' residence with Dr. Livingston, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Six, Part One, to Ogogo. The distance from Bagamoyo to Simbamweni we found to be one hundred and nineteen miles, and was accomplished in fourteen marches. But these marches, owing to difficulties arising for the Masika season, and more especially to the lagging of the fourth caravan under Maganga, extended to twenty-nine days, thus rendering our progress very slow indeed, but a little more than four miles a day. I infer from what I have seen of the travelling that had I not been encumbered by the sick Wanyamwezi porters, I could have accomplished the distance in sixteen days, for it was not the donkeys that proved recreant to my confidence they poor animals carrying a weight of one hundred and fifty pounds each arrived at simbamweni in first-rate order but it was maganga composed of greed and laziness and his weakly-bodied tribe who were ever falling sick in dry weather the number of marches might have been much reduced of the half-dozen of arabs or so who preceded this expedition along this route two accomplished the entire distance in eight days from the brief descriptions given of the country, as it day by day expanded to our view, enough may be gleaned to give readers a fair idea of it. The elevation of Simbamweni cannot be much over one thousand feet above the level, the rise of the land having been gradual. It being the rainy season, about which so many ominous statements were doled out to us by those ignorant of the character of the country, we naturally saw it under its worst aspect. But, even in this adverse phase of it, with all its death of black mud, its excessive dew, its dripping and chill grass, its density of rank jungle, and its fevers, I look back upon the scene with pleasure, for the wealth and prosperity it promises to some civilized nation, which in some future time will come and take possession of it. A railroad from Bagamoyo to Simbamweni might be constructed with as much ease and rapidity as, and at far less cost, than the Union Pacific Railway, whose rapid strides day by day towards completion the world heard of and admired. A residence in this part of Africa, after a thorough system of drainage had been carried out, would not be attended with more discomfort than generally follows upon the occupation of new land. The temperature at this season during the day never exceeded 85 degrees Fahrenheit. The nights were pleasant, too cold without a pair of blankets for covering, and, as far as Simbamweni, they were without that pest which is so dreadful in the Nebraska and Kansas prairies, the mosquito. The only annoyances I know of that would tell hard on the settler is the determined ferocity of the mabungo, or horsefly, the chufwa, etc., already described, which, until the dense forests and jungles were cleared, would be certain to render the keeping of domestic cattle unremunerative. Contrary to expectation, the expedition was not able to start at the end of two days. The third and the fourth days were passed miserably enough in the desponding valley of Ungerengeri. This river, small as it is in the dry seasons, becomes of considerable volume and power during the Masika, as we experience to our sorrow. It serves as a drain to a score of peaks and two long ranges of mountains, 
winding along their base, it is the recipient of the cascades seen flashing during the few intervals of sunlight, of all the nullas and ravines which render the lengthy frontage of the mountain slopes so rugged and irregular, until it glides into the valley of Simbamweni, a formidable body of water, opposing a serious obstacle to caravans without means to build bridges, added to which was an incessant downfall of rain, such a rain as shuts people indoors and renders them miserable and unamiable, a real London rain, an internal drizzle accompanied with mist and fog. When the sun shone, it appeared but a pale image of itself, and old pagazis, wise in their traditions as old whaling captains, shook their heads ominously at the dull spectre, and declared it was doubtful if the rain would cease for three weeks yet. The site of the caravan camp on the hither side of the Ungarangeri was a hotbed of malaria, unpleasant to witness, an abomination to memory. The filth of generations of pagazis had gathered innumerable hosts of creeping things. Armies of black, white, and red ants infest the stricken soil. Centipedes, like worms of every hue, clamber over shrubs and plants. Hanging to the undergrowth are the honeycombed nests of yellow-headed wasps, with stings as harmful as scorpions. Enormous beetles, as large as full-grown mice, roll dunghills over the ground. Of all sorts, shapes, sizes, and hues are the myriad-fold vermin with which the ground teems. In short, the richest entomological collection could not vie in variety and numbers with the species which the four walls of my tent enclosed from morning until night. On the fifth morning, or the twenty-third April, the rain gave us a few hours' respite, during which we managed to wade through the Stygian quagmire reeking with noisomeness to the inundated river-bank. The soldiers commenced at 5 a.m. to convey the baggage across from bank to bank over a bridge which was the most rustic of the rustic kind. Only an ignorant African would have been satisfied with its small utility as a means to cross a deep and rapid body of water. Even for light-footed Wanyamwezi pagazis it was anything but comfortable to traverse. Only a professional tightrope performer could have carried a load across with ease. To travel over an African bridge requires first a long leap from land to the limb of a tree, which may or may not be covered by water, followed by a long jump ashore. With seventy pounds weight on his back, the carrier finds it difficult enough. Sometimes he is assisted by ropes extemporized from the long convolvuli which hang from almost every tree, but not always, these being deemed superfluities by the Washensi. Fortunately, the baggage was transferred without a single accident, and though the torrent was strong, the donkeys were dragged through the flood by vigorous efforts and much objurgation, without a casualty. This performance of crossing the Ungerengeri occupied fully five hours, though energy, abuse, and fury enough were expended for an army. Reloading and wringing our clothes dry, we set out from the horrible neighborhood of the river, with its reek and filth, in a northerly direction, following a road which led up to easy and level ground. Two obtruding hills were thus avoided on our left, and, after passing them, we had shut out the view of the hateful valley. I always found myself more comfortable and light-hearted while travelling than when chafing and fretting in camp at delays which no effort could avoid, 
and consequently I fear that some things, while on a march, may be tinted somewhat stronger than their appearance or merit may properly warrant. But I thought that the view opening before us was much more agreeable than the valley of Zimbamweni with all its indescribable fertility. It was a series of glades opening one after another between forest clumps of young trees, hemmed in distantly by isolated peaks and scattered mountains. Now and again, as we crested low eminences, we caught sight of the blue Uzagara mountains, bounding the horizon westerly and northerly, and looked down upon a vast expanse of plain which lay between. At the foot of the lengthy slope, well watered by bubbling springs and mountain rills, we found a comfortable kambi with well-made huts, which the natives call Simbo. It lies just two hours or five miles northwest of the Ungerengeri crossing. The ground is rocky, composed principally of quartzose detritus swept down by the constant streams. In the neighborhood of these grow bamboo, the thickest of which was about two and a half inches in diameter. The myombo, a very shapely tree with a clean trunk like an ash, the imbite, with large fleshy leaves like the mtamba, sycamore, plum tree, the ugaza, or tamarisk, and the mgungo, a tree containing several wide branches with small leaves clustered together in a clump, and the silk cotton tree. Though there are no villages or settlements in view of Simbo Kambi, there are several clustered within the mountain folds, inhabited by Wazigua, somewhat prone to dishonest acts and murder. The long, broad plain visible from the eminences crossed between the Ungeringiri and Simbo was now before us, and became known to sorrowful memory subsequently as the Makata Valley. The initial march was from Simbo, its terminus at Rehaneko, at the base of the Usagara Mountains, six marches distant. The valley commences with broad undulations, covered with young forests of bamboo, which grow thickly along the streams. The dwarf fan-palm, the stately palmyra, and the mgungu. These undulations soon become broken by gullies containing water, nourishing dense crops of cane reeds and broad-bladed grass, and, emerging from this district, wide savanna covered with tall grass open into view, with an isolated tree here and there agreeably breaking the monotony of the scene. The Makata is a wilderness containing but one village of the Wasagua throughout its broad expanse. Venison consequently abounds within the forest clumps, and the kudu, hartebeest, antelope, and zebra may be seen at early dawn emerging into the open savannas to feed. At night the Sinaina prowls about with its hideous clamour seeking for sleeping prey, man or beast. The slushy mire of the savannas rendered marching a work of great difficulty. Its tenacious hold of the feet told terribly on men and animals. A ten-mile march required ten hours. We were therefore compelled to camp in the middle of this wilderness, and construct a new camby, a measure which was afterwards adopted by half a dozen caravans. The cart did not arrive until nearly midnight, and with it, besides three or four broken-down pagazis, came Bombay with a dolorous tale that having put his load, consisting of the property tent, one large American axe, his two uniform coats, his shirts, beads and cloth, powder, pistol and hatchet, on the ground, to go and assist the cart out of a quagmire, he had returned to the place where he had left it, and could not find it. That he believed that some thieving Washenzi, who always lurk in the rear of caravans to pick up stragglers, had decamped with it. 
which dismal tale, told me at black midnight, was not received at all graciously, but rather with most wrathful words, all of which the penitent captain received as his proper due. Working myself into a fury, I enumerated his sins to him. He had lost the goat at Mohale, he had permitted Kamisi to desert with valuable property at Imbiki, he had frequently shown culpable negligence in not looking after the donkeys, permitting them to be tied up at night without seeing that they had water, and in the mornings, when about to march, he preferred to sleep until seven o'clock, rather than wake up early and saddle the donkeys, that we might start at six o'clock. He had shown of late great love for the fire, cowering like a bloodless man before it, torpid and apathetic. He had now lost the property tent in the middle of the Masiki season, by which carelessness the cloth bales would rot and become valueless. He had lost the axe which I should want at Ujiji to construct my boat. And finally he had lost a pistol and hatchet, and a flask full of the best powder. Considering all these things, how utterly incompetent he was to be captain, I would degrade him from his office, and appoint Mabruki Burton instead. Uledi, also, following the example of Bombay, instead of being second captain, should give no orders to any soldiers in future, but should himself obey those given by Mabruki, the said Mabruki being worth a dozen Bombays and two dozen Uledis. And so he was dismissed, with orders to return at daylight to find the tent, axe, pistol, powder, and hatchet. The next morning the caravan, thoroughly fatigued with the last day's exertions, was obliged to halt. Bombay was dispatched after the lost goods. Kingaru, Mabruki the Great, and Mabruki the Little, were dispatched to bring back three doty worth of grain, on which we were to subsist in the wilderness. Three days passed away, and we were still at camp, awaiting, with what patience we possessed, the return of the soldiers. In the meantime, provisions ran very low. No game could be procured. The birds were so wild. Two days' shooting procured but two potfuls of birds, consisting of grouse, quail, and pigeons. Bombay returned unsuccessfully from his search after the missing property, and suffered deep disgrace. On the fourth day I dispatched Shaw with two more soldiers to see what had become of Kingaru and the two Mabrukis. Towards night he returned completely prostrated with a violent attack of the Mukunguru, or ague, but bringing the missing soldiers, who were thus left to report to themselves. With most thankful hearts did we quit our camp, where so much anxiety of mind and fretfulness had been suffered, not heeding a furious rain, which, after drenching us all night, might have somewhat damped our ardour for the march under other circumstances. The road for the first mile led over reddish ground, and was drained by gentle slopes falling east and west. But, leaving the cover of the friendly woods, on whose eastern margin we had been delayed so long, we emerged into one of the savannas, whose soil during the rain is as soft as slush, and tenacious as thick mortar, where we were all threatened with the fate of the famous Arkansas traveller, who had sunk so low in one of the many quagmires in Arkansas County, that nothing but his tall stove-pipe hat was left visible. Shaw was sick, and the whole duty of driving the foundering caravan devolved upon myself. The Wanyamezi donkeys stuck in the mire as if they were rooted to it. As fast as one was flogged from a stubborn position, prone to the deaths fell another, giving me a Sisyphean labour, which was maddening trader pelting rain, assisted by such men as Bombay and Uledi, who could not for a whole skin's sake stomach the storm and mire. 
two hours of such a task enabled me to drag my caravan over a savannah one mile and a half broad, and barely had I finished congratulating myself over my success before I was halted by a deep ditch which, filled with rainwater from the inundated savannas, had become a considerable stream, breast-deep, flowing swiftly into the Makata. Donkeys had to be unloaded, led through a torrent, and loaded again on the other bank, an operation which consumed a full hour. Presently, after straggling through a wood-clump, barring our progress was another stream, swollen into a river. The bridge being swept away, we were obliged to swim and float our baggage over, which delayed us two hours more. Leaving this second river-bank, we splashed, waded, occasionally half-swimming, and reeled through mire, water-dripping grass and matama stalks, along the left bank of the Makata proper, until farther progress was effectually prevented for that day by a deep bend of the river, which we should be obliged to cross the next day. Though but six miles were traversed during that miserable day, the march occupied ten hours. Half dead with fatigue, I yet could feel thankful that it was not accompanied by fever, which it seemed a miracle to avoid. For if ever a district was cursed with the ache, the Makata wilderness ranks foremost of those afflicted. Surely the sight of the dripping woods enveloped in opaque mist of the inundated country with lengthy swaths of tiger-grass laid low by the turbid flood, of mounds of decaying trees and canes, of the swollen river and the weeping sky, was enough to engender the Mukunguru. The well-used kambi and the heaps of filth surrounding it were enough to create a cholera. The Makata, a river whose breadth during the dry season is but forty feet, in the Masiki season assumes the breadth death and force of an important river. Should it happen to be an unusually rainy season, it inundates the great plain which stretches on either side, and converts it into a great lake. It is the main feeder of the Wami River, which empties into the sea between the ports of Saadani and Winde. About ten miles northeast of the Makata crossing, the Great Makata, the Little Makata, a nameless creek, and the Rudewa River unite and the river thus formed becomes known as the Wami. Throughout Uzagara, the Wami is known as the Mukondokwa. Three of these streams take their rise from the crescent-like Uzagara range, which bounds the Makata plain south and southwesterly, while the Rudewa rises in the northern horn of the same range. So swift was the flow of the Makata, and so much did its unsteady bridge, half buried in the water, imperil the safety of the property, that its transfer from bank to bank occupied fully five hours. No sooner had we landed every article on the other side, undamaged by the water, than the rain poured down in torrents that drenched them all, as if they had been dragged through the river. To proceed through the swamp which an hour's rain had formed was utterly out of the question. We were accordingly compelled to camp in a place where every hour furnished its quota of annoyance. One of the Wangwana soldiers engaged at Bagamoyo, named Kingaru, improved an opportunity to desert with another Magwana's kit. My two detectives, Uledi, Grant's valet, and Sarmian, were immediately dispatched in pursuit, both being armed with American breech-loaders. They went about their task with an adroitness and celerity which augured well for the success. In an hour they returned with the runaway, having found him hidden in the house of a Mzegua chief called Kigondo, who lived about a mile from the eastern bank of the river, and who had accompanied Uledi and Sarmien to receive his reward, 
and render an account of the incident. Kikondo said, when he had been seated, I saw this man carrying a bundle and running hard, by which I knew that he was deserting you. We, my wife and I, were sitting in our little watch-hut, watching our corn, and, as the road runs close by, this man was obliged to come close to us. We called to him when he was near, saying, Master, where are you going so fast? Are you deserting the Muzungu? For we know you belong to him, since you bought from us yesterday two doughty worth of meat. Yes, said he, I am running away. I want to get to Simamweni. If you will take me there, I will give you a doughty. We said to him then, Come into our house, and we'll talk it over quietly. When he was in our house, in an inner room, we locked him up, and went out again to the watch, but leaving word with the women to look out for him. We knew that, if you wanted him, you would send Askari, soldiers, after him. We had but lit our pipes when we saw two men armed with short guns, and having no loads, coming along the road, looking now and then on the ground as if they were looking at footmarks. We knew them to be the men we were expecting, so we hailed them and said, "'Masters, what are you looking for?' They said, "'We are looking for a man who has deserted our master. Here are his footsteps. If you have been long in your hut you must have seen him. Can you tell us where he is?' We said, "'Yes, he is in our house. If you will come with us we will give him up to you, but your master must give us something for catching him.' As Kegondo had promised to deliver Kingaru up, there remained nothing further to do for Uledi and Sarmian but to take charge of their prisoner, and bring him and his captors to my camp on the western bank of the Makaza. Kingaru received two dozen lashes, and was chained. His captor a doughty, besides five keta of red coral beads for his wife. That downpour of rain which visited us the day we crossed the Makaza proved the last of the Masika season. As the first rainfall which we had experienced occurred on the 23rd March, and the last on the 30th April, its duration was thirty-nine days. The seers of Bagamoyo had delivered their vaticinations concerning this same Masika with solemnity. For forty days, said they, rain would fall incessantly, whereas we had but experienced eighteen days' rain. Nevertheless, we were glad that it was over, for we were tired of stopping day after day to dry the bales and grease the tools and ironware, and of seeing all things of cloth and leather rot visibly before our eyes. The first of May found us struggling through the mire and water of the Makata, with a caravan bodily sick from the exertion and fatigue of crossing so many rivers and wading through marshes. Shaw was still suffering from his first Mukunguru. Zaidi, a soldier, was critically ill with the smallpox. The Kichuma Chuma, little irons, had hold of Bombay across the chest, rendering him the most useless of the unserviceables. Mabruk Salim, a youth of lusty frame, following the example of Bombay, laid himself down on the marshy ground, professing his total inability to breast the Makata swamp. Abdul Kader, the Hindi tailor and adventurer, the weakliest of mortal bodies, was ever ailing for lack of force, as he expressed it in French, i.e. strength, ever indisposed to work, shiftless, moxic, but ever hungry. Oh God! was the cry of my tired soul. Were all the men of my expedition like this man, I should be compelled to return. Solomon was wise, perhaps from inspiration, perhaps from observation. I was becoming wise by experience, and I was compelled to observe that when mud and wet sapped the physical energy of the lazily inclined, a dog-whip became their bags, restoring them to a sound, sometimes to an extravagant activity. For thirty miles from our camp, 
was the Makata Plain an extensive swamp. The water was on an average one foot in depth. In some places we plunged into holes three, four, or even five feet deep. Plash, splash, plash, splash, were the only sounds we heard from the commencement of the march until we found the bomas occupying the only dry spots along the line of march. This kind of work continued for two days until we came in sight of the Rudewa River, another powerful stream with banks brimful of rushing rainwater. Crossing a branch of the Rudewa and emerging from the dank, reedy grass crowding the western bank, the view consisted of an immense sheet of water topped by clumps of grass, tufts, and foliage of thinly scattered trees, bounded ten or twelve miles off by the eastern front of the Usagara mountain range. The acme of discomfort and vexation was realized on the five-mile march from the Rudewa branch. As myself and the Wangwana appeared with the loaded donkeys, the Bagazis were observed huddled on a mount. When asked if the mount was the camp, they replied, No. Why then do you stop here? Ugh, water plenty! One drew a line across his loins to indicate the depth of water before us. Another drew a line across his chest, another across his throat, another held his hand over his head, by which he meant that we should have to swim. Swim five miles through a reedy marsh? It was impossible. It was also impossible that such varied accounts could all be correct. Without hesitation, therefore, I ordered the Wangwana to proceed with the animals. After three hours of splashing through four feet of water, we reached dry land, and had traversed the swamp of Makata. But not without the swamp, with its horrors, having left a durable impression upon our minds. No one was disposed to forget its fatigues, nor the nausea of travel which it almost engendered. Subsequently, we had to remember its passage still more vividly, and to regret that we had undertaken the journey during the Masika season, when the animals died from this date by twos and threes almost every day until but five sickly, worn-out beasts remained, when the Wangwana, soldiers, and pagazis sickened of diseases innumerable, when I myself was finally compelled to lie abed with an attack of acute dysentery which brought me to the verge of the grave. I suffered more, perhaps, than I might have done had I taken the proper medicine, but my overconfidence in that compound called Collis Brown's Chlorodyne delayed the cure which ultimately resulted from a judicious use of Dover's powder. In no one single case of diarrhoea or acute dysentery had this Chlorodyne, about which so much has been said and written, any effect of lessening the attack whatever, though I used three bottles. To the dysentery contracted during the transit of the Makata swamp, only two fell victims— and those were Pagazi and my poor little dog, Omar, my companion from India. The only tree of any prominence in the Makata Valley was the Palmyra palm, Borassus flabelliformis, and this grew in some places in numbers sufficient to be called a grove. The fruit was not ripe while we passed, otherwise we might have enjoyed it as a novelty. The other vegetation consisted of the several species of thornbush, and the graceful parachute-topped and evergreen mimosa. The 4th of May we were ascending a gentle slope towards the important village of Rianeco, the first village near to which we encamped in Usagara. It lay at the foot of the mountain, and its plenitude and mountain air promised its comfort and health. It was a square, compact village, surrounded by a thick wall of mud, enclosing cone-topped huts, roofed with bamboo and hulker stalks, and contained a population of about a thousand souls. 
It has several wealthy and populous neighbours, whose inhabitants are independent enough in their manner, but not unpleasantly so. The streams are of the purest water, fresh and pellucid as crystal, bubbling over round pebbles and clean gravel, with a music delightful to hear to the traveller in search of such a sweetly potable element. The bamboo grows to serviceable size in the neighbourhood of Raneko, strong enough for tent and banji poles, and in numbers sufficient to supply an army. The mountain slopes are densely wooded with trees that might supply very good timber for building purposes. We rested four days at this pleasant spot to recruit ourselves and to allow the sick and feeble time to recover a little before testing their ability in the ascent of the Uzagara Mountains. End of chapter 6, part 1